Luck under center. He'll bring uh, Donnie Avery from left to right. Play action. Rolls to the right side. Looks back. Throws to the left side. Caught by Ballard. 15, 10, 5. He dives for the end zone. He is... Oh! Colts win! Colts win! Colts win! Big Ballard on the pass catch! What is up, Football Nation? Welcome to the Football Nation Presents the Sportscasters podcast. It is episode number 26 of this little program, recorded on October 30th, 2012. Staying dry here in Buffalo and thinking about everyone out there in New York City and Atlantic City and along the East Coast who had a deal with that bitch Sandy. Yeah. Hopefully everyone's okay. Hopefully everyone gets their power back soon and... uh our prayers are definitely with you. Um, got a great show lined up for you today. Freddie Coleman from ESPN Radio is going to join us to talk a little bit about doing his NFL on ESPN Radio show that he does every Sunday from 1 to 7. Uh, it's probably the best thing to do if you're in the car during sure. football. Yeah, I mean, unless listening to one specific game, maybe of your hometown. Or our you podcast. Might, or the, the Sportscasters podcast, yeah. Uh, this it's a great show, and Freddie's got some great insight, and we're gonna talk to him about that. Uh, a couple things. Last week's show, got to thank the boss, Kerry J. Byrne, for being on the show, not firing us, and I want to thank everyone who downloaded it. It was one of our most successful uh, podcasts to date. I don't know if Kerry uh, threatened some people around the Football Nation office to listen to it or what the case was, but it it was a uh, successful. Podcast and, and that makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're building a little bit of momentum here. And I want to thank everyone who's listened to the show so far. So this is what we have to do today. We have to do three things, which we're going to do in a second. We have a interview with Freddie Coleman. We have an email from a listener in Michigan, Detroit, Michigan. And uh, we have a segment that we like to call One Last Thing. So let's not delay. Let's play. Three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. That other business, as usual, is the NFL week that was. Let's start right off with Thursday's game, the Buccaneers at Vikings. It's hard to be shocked in the NFL. But this one, this game was pretty close, but the way it played out anyway. Caught me off guard. The Vikings are have been kind of a well-rounded team. They run the ball well, of course, with Peterson. They pass the ball well with Percy Harvin. Not that their passing yardage really reflects that, but... Uh, they have some offensive weapons. They've been a pretty solid defensive team. But, boy, Tampa Bay just uh, basically ran them off the field. Sure did. Uh, Josh Freeman, who had a little bit of a sophomore slump last year, is looking really solid the last three, four games after a little bit of a slow start. Doug Martin showed some explosive ability, and he had over 200. And- Best game as a pro. Looks like the real deal, this kid. Yeah, he's a little guy, quick, uh, Real, like you said, nice game. 
Yeah, you know, it's frustrating for someone like me who's a Saints fan and you see how much a Heisman Trophy winner like Mark Ingram has struggled in this league. And then you have a guy like Martin and it just it looks like a great pick by he, the Buccaneers. Yeah, I mean, Doug Martin's not exactly the best case for drafting a running back doesn't matter because he was a high pick himself. But still, like you said, it's, yeah, it's, it's I just think, so hard to predict. I think they backs. were picked right around the same spot in the first round. Right. You know what I mean? And uh, it's frustrating to see one work out and the other not. And maybe that – I don't want to you know do it every single week, but – I'm sure people are interested. People who listen to this podcast will ask me what what happened to the Saints this week, you know. And first, I'll say this: the defense is historically bad. Nobody's arguing that. I think right now they're thirtieth uh, and thirty first, thirtieth against the pass and thirty first against the rush. They've given more than four hundred yards in every single game this season. That's never happened in the history of the NFL before. But I think that the defense has gotten to a point in this season where they're going to make a few stops in the game. And when the game was close, I mean, the Saints and Broncos went to halftime. It was 17-7. It wasn't a blowout. When the game is close, the Saints offense needs to take advantage of every single stop. And the Saints punted eight times on Sunday. And I can't remember them punting. That many times since Drew Brees came to the team in 2006. The offense needs to be perfect. And I think that is starting to wear in them. And I think that's why this is going to be a long season for the Saints. I don't think that it's just about the fact that the defense is bad. The defense wasn't very good last year either. And they went 13-3. and The difference is, is that the offense was clicking at a rate where it just didn't matter. And if they're going to give up 30 points... That doesn't mean they're going to lose because they're capable of scoring 31. Are they just on the field too much, the defense? Is yeah, it, they have a real hard time getting off on third I mean, down. I don't know the intricacies of football enough, but maybe there's some Ds that are just built to beat you honestly. And maybe their D is built that they know the offense is going to keep them off the field, and so maybe they can just take more high-risk type plays, and maybe those – just aren't working out. I don't know. Like I said, I don't. Well, not I mean, a defensive coordinator. If we're looking at the game, okay, the Saints got the ball first. They went three and out. Defense came out on the field and they forced a three and out. The Saints got the ball back and drove to about midfield and stalled and had a punt. And then Denver went down and scored their first touchdown of the game. Maybe the that's Saints, it right there. The yeah. Saints offense had two chances before the Broncos put a, a point on the board yep. to, to take a lead, and they didn't. And after the Broncos took that lead. They came out, and they went three and out again and punted. The Broncos got the ball back, and the Saints' defense forced a turnover. Yeah. You know, and the the offense got the ball back, and when they did get the ball back, they did score um, a uh, touchdown on that drive. It's the first play of the second quarter. So it's just that they—and then the Broncos came back out and were stopped again, and the Saints— Breeze was intercepted on the next drive. Not going to go through the whole game. Right. The point is, is that when the game was close, the defense was getting stops, but the Saints' offense didn't do enough to protect the defense. That's what the Saints' offense needs to do. They need to protect this defense that they know is bad. And when they were balling in that beginning of the game, the Saints' offense wasn't there. And eight punts 
and too many three and outs, and the defense got worn out, and Peyton Manning picked them apart in the second half. Yeah, we're kind of skipping around here, but uh, from a defense that's historically bad to a defense that, at least fantasy-wise, is historically good, the, the Chicago Bears are now 6-1, and 4-0 and at home. Not overly convincing, though. Uh, they have to come from 12 points down to beat the lowly Carolina Panthers, who are in all sorts of disarray this year. And uh, they scored two touchdowns in about 15 seconds to take over that game. They scored their own, and then they had a pick six on defense. Yeah, and uh, Cutler brought to that team to be better than Rex Grossman, to be a solid offense, to not just be the Bears team that has to rely 100% on defense. Same with Brandon Marshall. Marshall's been good, but Cutler hasn't. So they've been in a lot of close games, a lot of games they've had to come from behind in, and Six and one. Hard to argue with six and one. But. Fifteen carries isn't enough for Matt Forte, by the way. No, not when he. I don't think he had that many catches either. I mean, if you want to get he had four, five. Okay, that's not terrible, five targets though. So. Only five targets. Okay, I think he should be targeted probably ten times a game, and maybe maybe then the fifteen. He should have about twenty-five touches a game. Yeah, at, not at least. He's your best player on your offense if it's not Brandon Marshall, and uh, Cutler just hasn't been able to get it to Marshall when it mattered. Next game, San Diego-Cleveland. Boy, what a snoozer of a game that is. Cleveland scores in the first quarter. Uh, Trent Richardson touchdown, I believe, right? Yes, yeah. first and, touchdown in the first quarter. And, boy, Robert Meacham, I bet you're still shaking your head. Late in the fourth oh, quarter, the chest, yeah. uh, Rivers put the ball right there for him, and it would have been a sure touchdown to take the lead, and he dropped it. And they paid him too much money to bring him in this year to drop balls like that. And I'll tell you what, that – Vincent Jackson wouldn't have dropped that ball. Nope. You know, and that's basically a trade they made in the offseason, letting Vincent Jackson go to um, Tampa Bay and replacing him with Robert Meacham. And Robert Meacham was a really good complimentary player in New Orleans, but I don't think he's good enough to be a number one guy in San Diego. Yeah, and I called Rivers out on this podcast last week, and he did nothing to prove me wrong, and now he's got three, four days to fix it until it – well – from Sunday, they play Thursday night against Kansas City in Kansas City. They better win that. Yeah, they they have to. They're a ten point favorite in that game. I don't like. I mentioned on the other podcast. I don't think they've earned it, but they've got to win it. Uh, he's got to stop yelling at his offensive linemen, and as bad as they may be, and just go out and win a game. Is it possible that the Lions woke up on Sunday? I think so. I, I that's a good team. Uh, Titus Young finally got involved in, in a big way. Actually, he was probably the leading receiver in fantasy for the week. Nine catches, more, 100 yards, two TDs. More importantly, Matt Stafford had, I think, his first multi-touchdown game of the season. A great game. 34 of 49, which is too many attempts, but they love to throw it. 352 yards, three TDs, and he had a rushing touchdown. Yeah, that might be one of them games where you just overthink it a little bit. Uh that team is a good defense in Seattle, so maybe you think you can't run on them. But LaShore averaged 4.6 yards a carry. Bell averaged 3.6. So it's not exactly – they weren't breaking anything crazy long or anything, but they ran okay. Detroit just refuses to run. So it's good to see Stafford turn it around. Uh, a couple of uh, quick ones we've mentioned before. The margin of victory in the NFL is really small, and there's no bigger illustration of that than in the Dallas and New York game. Yeah. Um, Des Bryant – you know, he's a guy who might just need to get out of Dallas to be so. as good as he can be. You see it. And 
it's even from play to play. You'll see this guy make a play that only a few people in the world can make, and then you'll see a ball bounce off his chest. And every time that happens, it seems to bounce into the defender's hands, and it's and everyone's looking at Romo. Yep. You know, because there's not a quarterback in the league under more scrutiny from pass to pass than Tony Romo is. You know, every, they both might need it. Romo might need Des Bryant to be gone as much as Des Bryant needs to be gone. Yeah, and you know, they Des Bryant goes up and makes an unbelievable catch in the back of the end zone. I don't know what the Giants defender was doing getting beat on a double move there because the only way you can lose the game is to get beat over the top. With six seconds left in the game, he catches the ball and comes down. It was originally called a touchdown on the field, but under closer inspection, his hand just barely touched down first on the white chalk at the end line. And um, just it was that close to the Giants losing that game to Dallas, being swept by Dallas, um, and Dallas being a real contender in that division. To now, everyone's questioning, yeah. does Des Bryant belong there? They're below 500. They're miles behind the Giants for the division, and their season is at a crossroads right now. You know what I've always wondered about football? This is a dumb, dumb statement here, but uh, you're talking about how just his fingertip hit the sideline or whatever. Uh it's weird because a guy can like do the toe tap on the front of his toes and go out of bounds. Doesn't need the whole foot in bounds. But if you land on the front of your toes and your heels land out of bounds, you're out. You're out of bounds. Yep, that happened to the Saints on a big third down in the game against the. Do you think that's written in the rules? Or I mean, it must be somewhere. It's just a very odd rule that you're allowed to not get your foot in bounds, your whole foot in bounds on a toe tap, where you can kind of just drag your feet. I think in general. What is and what isn't a catch is just way overcomplicated in this league. Right. And if, if, in general. If Des Bryant hit his butt first and then his hand landed he out, would have been okay. it would have been a touchdown. Yep. It's just so, so strange, the rules like that. Even if his hand, like his palm hit first and then his finger landed out, he would have been okay. Be out, I think. No, he would have been okay, I think. Well, I don't know. I don't know if they judge the hand the same way they judge the, the foot. foot. Right. <laughs> Where it technically has two different. Such, such an odd rule. Um, anything else you wanted to mention from week eight? Uh, New England blew out St. Louis. They look good. Miami, who I've kind of hyped up a couple weeks now, looked very good against the Jets. We talk on our other podcasts how we both picked opposing sides in the uh, Miami Indy game, game this week. Both right. teams kind of on the rise. So that that'd be interesting. I think one of those teams, maybe the winner of that game, makes a real push for the wild card. One thing I wanted to say that was pretty interesting. Did the Steelers find a blueprint for stopping RG3. Um, and w- huh. how will Griffin's season go from this point? I want to know. I'm going to be watching because Griffin was only 16-34 to 34 throwing uh, for 177. He had a touchdown. He didn't get picked off. He's a smart kid. But they kept him the six carries for eight yards, and he's had yeah. a lot of rushing stats this whole season. And it's going to be interesting to find out. Did the Steelers identify a way to stop what the Redskins have been doing to get success out of Griffin, which is a lot of triple option and, and stuff that normally doesn't right, work right. in the NFL. So I'm going to be curious to see where the Redskins go from here. Was that a turning point for them in their season? And San Francisco, uh, only a couple losses on their schedule so far. They went out and dominated and showed that they're just a class of that division. And they're uh, much better than Arizona. They're much better than Arizona. If it weren't for Seattle with a couple – Seattle fans probably don't like to say this. Fail luck, Mary. Lucky – fail Mary and then uh, the last second or close to last second win in New England. I mean, they've had some fortunate victories 
to be at 500. But uh, San Francisco, they're going to run away with that division again. Yes, they will. It, it looks pretty pretty close to the beginning of the year, but uh, nope, nope, no. it's over. All right, my second thing this week. A couple weeks ago, Fred Davis, poor guy, uh, done for the season, was injured. So the Redskins kind of scrambled to sign a replacement tight end, and that tight end was Chris Cooley, who was not under contract anywhere. During the contract, USA Today Sports, Chris Chase writes, Chris, truly tr- Chris Cooley tried to get some perks written into the contract when he re-signed with the Redskins <laughs> on the Monday following the injury to start starting tight end Fred Davis. Quote, literally, I have text correspondence trying to negotiate a case of beer into my contract, unquote. Uh, he told the D.C. Sports Cooley's a character. Yeah. He says, they wouldn't do it. I wanted it in writing so much. Uh, there's really not more to add to that. It's just a pretty funny thing to try to get in there. The Reds, the author goes on to say the Redskins made the safe move in passing on the request, knowing Roger Goodell's tendency to rewrite the salary cap rule book after time had passed. The team could have retroactively been fined millions per 12-pack, which is obviously a joke. But uh said the Cooley's rejection by the Redskins marks the first time in recorded history Dan Snyder has said no in a player negotiation. <laughs> and uh, we mentioned Cooley's a character, and if you want to follow him on Twitter, he's at the Cooley Zone. <laughs> nice. And his website is www.thecooleyzone.com. Uh, my second thing, we talked a little bit about the Buccaneers getting their biggest win of the season. Well, the Buccaneers can't catch a break. Uh, Pro Bowl guard and probably one of the biggest free agent signees of the offseason, Carl Nix, will miss the rest of the season because of a toe injury, the team announced Tuesday. Nix requires surgery on a toe, uh, torn plantar plate in his left toe, and he'll be placed on injured reserve. He's played in all seven games and has looked – I mean, he's one of the – it's hard, right? I mean, guards, who watches guards, but – He's one of the best guards in the league. They paid him a lot of money to be one of the best guards in the league. And, you know, some of those runs that Doug Martin had were right behind Carl Nix, right up his butt. So it'll be interesting to see how the loss of Nix affects the passing and rushing game in Tampa Bay just when it seemed like everything was starting to go their way. My last thing this week, we talked about this ad nauseum, the Bounty Gate thing. And finally, some details are coming forward. Uh, a major detail, actually, is the whistleblower has come out, and it's Mike Sorello. Dick. A, a former Saints assistant spoke to Greg Aiello, an NFL spokesman, regarding the team's alleged pay-for-pain program. And let me say that, uh, I don't know how to put this nicely, but he comes off... He's not an overly intelligent guy. It doesn't seem like he has. In you think in a letter you were going to write to an NFL spokesman, unless he's just buddies with this guy and this is kind of off the cuff or whatever. But you'd think this would be a little more professional letter. There's it's riddled with spelling mistakes, strange punctuations. But the quote is: "So I have it. I have info on Saints Jovit lying, lying in capital with a capital L." to your NFL investigators on bounties, bounties and capital. Like just like I said, just strange capitalization throughout this. But anyway, from 2010 along with proof. I was there in the cover-up meetings with players and Joe. I love the NFL and want to work there again, but I'm afraid if I tell the truth, I will never coach again in the NFL. But I was fired for a situation that the Saints encourage. The email reads, according to the website, all I want is a job back in the NFL as a QC coach anywhere. So if talking to you jeopardizes that, 
So this is I will a, have to get back to you. This but the is Saints a, are a dirty organization. Contact a me. quality control guy that got fired by the Saints, emailing the NFL and saying all he wants in return for his cooperation is a quality control job anywhere in the league. That's their source. Uh, I don't think he's the way you word that makes it sound like he's trying to blackmail them a little bit, I, or try to work that out. He said all I want is a job back in the NFL as a QC coach. So if talking to you jeopardizes that, I will have to get back to you. So I think he's making sure that being the rat doesn't well, hurt his chances. Whatever, and it does. Well, sure. Nobody wants to hire a rat. You don't want that around your locker room. You don't want some guy that you know is going to run to the league every time something comes. That's not the right way to get on top. As hardcore a Saints fan as you are, did you know this name? Not really. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I, I wouldn't know control the, I wouldn't know who the Bills QC coach is. And it's hysterical that he's the quality control coach with his odd capitalization of letters. You know what a quality control guy does, right? I don't. He basically, one of his jobs is to make sure there's 11 guys on the field and not 12. You know, he makes copies during the week. I mean, it's a really, really low-level staff job. He's on the sideline during the week. But um, I want to say this. uh, Chris Collinsworth, during the game, when it got out of hand, him and Michaels were talking a little bit off about Bounty Gate, and he mentioned that Jonathan Vilma told him that the commissioner has told Vilma that he offered ten grand in the first two playoff games of the Saints Super Bowl run. So ten grand against Arizona and ten grand against Minnesota, and he says he didn't do it, and the commissioner simply doesn't believe him. Vilma went on to say. Why, if I did it the first two weeks, didn't I put a $10,000 bounty on Peyton Manning? On the Super Bowl? And that's a great question. I'd yeah. love to hear the answer for um, the I'd N- love to hear Roger Goodell tell me why Jonathan Vilma wanted ten grand on Warner and Favre's head, but was cool with Manning. Right. In September, the NFL commended Cirillo for coming forward to help its investigation, saying in the statement that, quote, information and detail he provided was credible and has since been confirmed in numerous respects by both other witnesses and supporting documents. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's going to have to come out too, I believe, because the next paragraph goes on to say, Vilma maintains earlier in the bounty appeals process that Cirillo had a vendetta. I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong too. Cirillo had a vendetta against Vitt after Cirillo was fired following the 2009 season, allegedly for leaving the team on at least two occasions, then providing false excuses for his absences. So... This guy makes me wish that Christopher Moltisanti was real. (laughs) This guy doesn't sound like he has the best track record. It doesn't mean he's lying, but it means that uh, they probably have to get these other witnesses and supporting documents to come forward if they're going to have any sort of case. Saints got screwed by all this bullshit. All right, my last thing, third thing. uh, Music is playing. Let us know we're talking too much. But this (laughs) is hilarious. Uh, Bryant McKinney says his latest financial entanglement is pure fiction. Uh, This is a story by Mark Sessler, uh, a writer for NFL.com. You can find it there. Uh, Apparently, the uh, Baltimore Ravens offensive tackle was sued in Miami-Dade Circuit Court for allegedly piling up $375,000 at a string of South Florida strip clubs. The suit was filed by club owner Charles Pop Young, the father of rapper Trick Daddy. 
Okay. Young contends McKinney never made good on a promissory note he signed in October of 2010. Young wants it all back with interest. These are McKinney's quotes on it. Because he would have invested that strip club money really well. Yeah. I got no papers. I was never served, McKinney told the Baltimore Sun this week. I just called my lawyer about this because this is a bogus story. I just read the article. He was working at those places, and he's tried to borrow money from me. People can put anything out there. What strip club gives you a $375,000 tab? It just sounds stupid to me. I never heard of this in my life. This is bogus to me. For it to be even reported is stupid to me. McKinney then called the gentleman's upon the gentleman's logic. You could never run up a tab like that. For someone like that to say something like this, they figure if they go to the media that you'll pay them, I guess. I would never pay this guy because what he's saying isn't true. I just found out this morning when people started texting me. This is the least of my worries. Uh, the article goes on to say that McKinney might be referring to his shaved-down earnings. His $3.2 million salary was reducted to $2.2 million in an effort to replay pro-player funding for a loan he took out during the 2011 lockout. He's not denying that. Uh, People love to BS, McKinney tweeted, which is funny to me. His logic does seem somewhat sound. I mean, I don't know what type of. I mean, how many dollar bills is he sticking in a pair of underwear to get to three hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars? I'm sure he's going to some high-class, expensive, exclusive strip clubs. But still, is there? Are they really going to let you, even if you're an athlete, run up a three hundred? Yeah, I'm good for three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. And what was he doing to run up that tab? You got to check out the story on NFL.com just to read the comments. Was he part of the original uh, Vikings love boat? Scandal? Yes. Yeah, he would have been there, right? Yep. Interesting. <clears throat> interestingly enough, too, it's always kind of fun when you I type Bryant McKinney into Google because I wanted to look up a little bit about him. And when you start to type a name, Google tries to autocomplete what it thinks you're thinking. The first thing after just Bryant McKinney with nothing else is Bryant McKinney gay. Oh. So this would contradict that. Yeah, I don't. That's an, before Bryant McKinney NFL or before Bryant McKinney Twitter. So. Boy, if if he's gay and has a three hundred seventy five thousand dollars strip club bill, he's he's doing something wrong. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's funny though, and you should go to NFL dot com and look up that story just to read some of the comments that I'm not going to ruin our good reputation with Football Nation <laughs> uh, reading. That's it for three things. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back from Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio. <laughs> Our guest today is from Brooklyn, New York, and is a graduate of Mansfield University. He's a former television guy who used to appear on CNN Sports Tonight and was a regular on the now-defunct CNN SI. In 2004, he joined ESPN Radio. These days, he still works at ESPN Radio, where he is the host of SportsCenter Tonight every Monday through Wednesday from 10 p.m. Eastern to 1 a.m. Eastern Time, and he also hosts a very popular NFL on ESPN Radio every Sunday from 1 o'clock to 7 o'clock with Eric Allen, Antonio Pierce, and Tim Hasselbeck. He's making his first appearance on the Football Nation and Sportscasters version of the podcast. A warm welcome to the very talented Freddie Coleman. What's up, Freddie? 
I'm doing good, my man. How are you today? Doing really good. Excited to have you on the football version of our podcast and just be able to talk a little football with you. And, uh, you know, I have had a few instances in the last couple of seasons where I had to travel on Sunday, long drive, and nothing beats, if you're in that position, ESPN Radio and the job that you guys do, keeping you up to speed with the games and the live reports that you have and the fun that you guys have together in the studio. And it just really makes you feel it's the radio version of Red Zone, basically. And uh, I definitely wanted to talk to you about that and um, kind of get your perspective on how that show kind of comes together every week, what you guys do to prepare for a show that is tough to prepare for in the sense that you have no idea what each Sunday is going to bring. Well, I think that's the fun part about that show because the script is not written for you and the outline is not going to be there for you. You have to react what's going on, and I think that's the beauty of that whole show. We always want to make sure that people understand that when we know something, when we find out about something, that they're going to find out about it before anybody else. So a lot of people like to have that kind of structure, and that doesn't bother me to have that kind of structure and everything defined. But there are plenty of times where something can happen, like Vic Ballard with that touchdown run. He had for the Indianapolis Colts against Tennessee in overtime. We saw that play live, and we could not believe he was able to make that play. And then we were able to transfer that to people out there listening. So something that is not scripted, you never know it's going to happen. I think that's the beauty of the show, and I think that's why that show works so well, is that we're reacting to it, and we can't wait to hear how people are going to react to how our reactions turn out to be and when they see it later on that night on TV. Yeah, you host that show with three guys who played in the league. Uh, What do you feel like your role is compared to theirs? Do you feel like it's your job to pull the radio out of them, or you know, where, where, where do you see yourself fitting in with the guys who played in the league that do the show with you? My job is to get out of their way. Let's be honest, because they played in the National Football League. You have Antonio Pierce, like Tim Hasselbeck, he won a Super Bowl championship. You had Eric Allen, who was a six-time pro bowler. There's no way I'm going to be on their level, and I shouldn't even try to prove to them or anybody else that I know as much about football as they do because I really don't. I did not play the game. I did not play in the NFL. I did not have a chance to be in the locker room setting what those guys had a chance to be a part of. My job is to make sure that if they bring out something that the average fan does not know, I want them to tell us that in layman's terms. We can try to have a lot of football terminology and X's and O's and everything like that, but I think if you get too much of that, it goes over the heads of people. I want to make sure that they break that down into a language that everybody can, ident- can identify with and understand whether you played football, whether you did not play football. So that, in essence, is my job, is to make sure that they bring those things out, that I bring those things out of them, and always keep people updated on the scores that are constantly going on on Sundays. Now, when the early games end and you get into the later games, the pace with the game slows down. But the show does pick up a little bit with the interviews, and you'll regularly be interviewing guys in locker rooms who just made plays. How challenging is that? It's challenging from the standpoint of you want to make sure you ask the right question and not ask the obvious question. But you don't want to have a question that will make them think too much, because let's be honest, 
these guys just got out of a football game. Their emotions are going to be red hot as it is. If you throw something at them that they have to really, really think about, you may not get the answer that you're looking for. So we try to keep things as simple as possible. We're very blessed that we have a lot of people working behind the scenes that may have had a chance to see a player do something that we may not have been able to spot. But we're pretty good and spot on and making sure and asking the right kind of questions, whether it was about the game or when we had Michael Turner, the running back of the Atlanta Falcons on. He had a lot of problems after they beat the Denver Broncos on Monday Night Football. We would not be doing our job if we didn't ask him about that, how he's been able to bounce back from that. So no question that it's challenging, and I love that challenge of asking somebody something about a specific play, a specific player, or if you had a lot of drama leading up to the game. For example, this week, Mike Pouncey, the center of the Miami Dolphins, he had a whole back and forth with Aaron Maven of the New York Jets, and the first question we threw at him was, with all the conversation that happened between these two, how sweet was it to shut up the Jets in their home field? And he said, man, that was the best feeling because they could not say anything. You get those kind of reactions, no matter how challenging it's going to be, when you get those kind of reactions, it makes everything worth it. Yeah. Do, do, you, uh, do you feel like after the game, the players had their guard down a little bit, you know, in the sense that they just finished playing the game. They're not really thinking about grabbing a phone and talking about the game with with somebody do you, you feel like you get a little less cliche from an athlete in that moment that they have their guard down a little bit or, do, or is yeah, it that's the a, opposite that's a that's a really good question because i think that's exactly when that happens they don't have time to get into player speak even if we get a player from the patriots and we know how much player and coach speak that organization is going to be about under bill belichick you're always going to get those kind of answers because Bill Belichick has not had a chance to kind of brainwash them in giving answers to the media that are not going to be very profound or anything else. So, yeah, I think that's when I think that's the best time to ask questions of a player when they win a football game because they're hyped about winning. They're glad to get a win. But more often than not, they're going to give you answers when they have not had any time to have that kind of debriefing from their coaching staff or the public relations department. So more often than not, you get those kind of questions out there. You're going to get the answers that you're looking for, or sometimes you're going to get an answer you could not have expected that makes the whole question and answer give and take worthwhile. How has Twitter changed uh, NFL and ESPN radio the last couple seasons? I think Twitter's changed radio and TV, period, because so many people are watching games and being interactive. I like, people call Twitter a social media. I like to call Twitter an eavesdropping media because people put stuff out there that they want everybody to see, but they don't know who's going to see it and how they're going to respond. And I think players getting involved in it, even coaches getting involved in it, many times somebody will put something on Twitter that is really, really good. Then if you get that player that Sunday on the NFL and ESPN radio, you can ask him about that and why did he put that out there? What did he mean by that? So believe me, when I first heard about Twitter, I kind of had screw face about it. I said, well, I don't know how this is going to work. But I think it's become an invaluable resource when used the right way. You're going to have idiots out there that are going to say idiotic things. And believe me, I've said some idiotic things on Twitter as well. But if you can get rid of that and move that out of the way and get to what that form is really all about and what makes it so good, then it's going to be something that's going to be very, very beneficial to you and anybody out there, whether they're doing a radio show, a TV show, or they just enjoy being a part of that social media. You know, one thing that's been a real theme on this show for us is how this season, it's really hard to get a read of the league if you just look at the standings. There's a lot of teams who, especially in the AFC, 
who have almost the same record, but you know that they're not the same team. Um, I mean, even if you go back to like when Arizona was 4-0 and Atlanta was 4-0, four weeks later we see a huge difference between Atlanta and Arizona that you might not have seen just by looking at the standings that day. A couple weeks ago, everyone in the AFC was 3-3, and you know, the AFC East. And now we see New England at five and three, and the Jets at three and five, and and maybe we're starting to see a little bit of a difference there. What kind of read have you been able to get on the teams in this league? I'm a, I'm always a big believer that the teams that can survive injuries and have the best coaching and the best quarterback, those teams are always going to rise. You look at each and every team and how much success they've had. You can attribute that to the fact they've been well coached. They've been they've had very good defenses. But their quarterbacks have not given away games. The Giants are six and two. They have Eli Manning. Chicago is six and one. They have Jay Cutler. Atlanta is seven and zero. Oh. They have Matt Ryan. San Francisco is six and two. They have Alex Smith. You go into the AFC and look at those division leaders. New England five and three. They have Tom Brady. Baltimore five and two. They have Joe Flacco. Houston six and one. They have Matt Schaub. And Denver four and three. They have Peyton Manning. Those teams, those kind of teams are always going to rise above surprises. Now, once in a while, you're going to get a team like the San Francisco 49ers last year who were able to write a terrific running game and outstanding defense and their quarterback having confidence from the coaching staff that he can make plays. They got all the way to the NFC Championship game, and if they didn't have any blunders in the special teams department, they might have gotten to the right. Super Bowl and beating the New York Giants. But when you have quarterbacks that understand what their teams are all about and when to make big plays and take advantage of those big plays and defense that can get off the field, and if you're well coached, that trend is never going to go away in the National Football League. So, yeah, Arizona was a surprise early, but no one really believed in them because their quarterback play was shoddy at best. You look at the Minnesota Vikings, people still wonder if Christian Ponder can make plays, even though right now they're still in the thick of things in the NFC North with a 5-3 and three record. But all those other teams, and you can include Green Bay in the mix of Aaron Rodgers, more often than not, those teams always have a say if they're going to get to the playoffs or if they're not going to get to the playoffs based on their personnel. You know, last week we had Kerry J. Byrne from Cold Heart Football Facts on the show, and we were talking a little bit about the AFC, and he's ready to anoint Houston. He just thinks that they have the just a really clear path to New Orleans. Is Who do you think is the main competition for Houston in the AFC at this point of the season? I don't know if I'm going to say that Houston has a clear path because I think the AFC is so balanced. I will say this. For my money, they're the best team in the NFL, not just in the AFC. I think if you put them on the same field with the Atlanta Falcons, Houston to me is a better football team than the Atlanta Falcons, even though the Falcons are undefeated. But you look at the Houston Texans, if they continue to play this way, not a lot of teams are going to beat them. But let's say they get in a playoff game against Tom Brady. His experience being in those situations and the defense getting a little bit better is maybe going to be better than the Houston Texans because Matt Schaub still has not played in a playoff game for the Houston Texans. You don't know how he's going to be able to dial that up with all that pressure being around him with a guy like Tom Brady on the other side. Same thing he faced the Denver Broncos. They keep running the football better. 
Peyton Manning keeps getting more comfortable with his receivers, like Denarius Thomas and Eric Decker. That defense has been terrific for the Broncos all season long. You can't clearly say that Houston's going to run away and hide from that football team because if things break right, the Denver Broncos could beat the Texans in the playoff game. So, yeah, they're the best team in football right now. I don't have any doubt in my mind about that. And there are a lot of teams, though, that could beat that team on any given time in a playoff game. They're not clear and far away being the best in the NFL. They're the best team right now, but they're not the most dominant team in the National Football League. Atlanta is 7-0. and Do you think they're the best team in the NFC? No. You know, I mean, I love what they've been able to do. And I think winning close games like they did against the Washington Redskins, then they beat the pants of the Philadelphia Eagles this past Sunday. Those games are only going to help them. But And Matt Ryan has been a top-flight quarterback down the stretch. I don't think anybody can deny that. But San Francisco is as good, if not better, in my opinion, than the Atlanta Falcons. And the same thing with the New York Giants. And you look at the Chicago Bears defense. If Atlanta has that one game, and I think that one game is out there where offensively they don't play well, do they have enough on defense where they can overcome that? They got away with it against the Carolina Panthers because that team is a mess, and they had that game at home. If they, were, if they were in the same situation playing the Giants or San Francisco, I don't think the Atlanta Falcons find a way to win that football game. Now, I may be proven wrong because of what they've been able to do to start the season, and they've had a terrific start to their season. But at the same time, though, I think that bad game is out there where things are not going right for them early. And if they find themselves in a game against a top-flight opponent like the Giants or the San Francisco 49ers, you have to wonder if the Falcons will find a way to win that kind of game because we have not seen that from this team when they played those kind of opponents either in the regular season or in the playoffs. You know, we didn't talk to you during the off season, so that means you have had an eight-week head start to answer this question. <laughs> Who do you think is going to be in New Orleans playing for the Super Bowl in February? You know what, I mean, if you put my feet to the fire right now, I still think the San Francisco 49ers, I think they come out of the NFC. It would not surprise if they played the Green Bay Packers in an NFC championship game. I got them coming out of there. And I still have New England coming out of the AFC. I know Houston has been fantastic, but I think because New England has more motivation probably than anybody else in the NFL. They have not won a championship since 2004. And let's be honest. Those championships still have the specter of Spygate over that organization, and they've lost two Super Bowl championships since that time to the New York Giants. They would love nothing better than to show people, look, we didn't need Spygate. Spygate was just something that was a media creation. We can win championships without that. That motivation and the fact they have not won an NFL championship in eight years, that's why I believe in them just a little bit more than anybody else in the AFC. All right, uh, Freddie Coleman, you can listen to him every Monday through Wednesday on ESPN Radio from 10 p.m. Eastern Time to 1 a.m. Eastern Time for SportsCenter Tonight. And you can also hear him every Sunday. It's a great show, 1 to 7. If you happen to be in the car or away from the television, uh, it's the NFL on ESPN Radio. He does it with Eric Allen, Antonio Pierce, and Tim Hasselback. Highly recommended. And you can find Freddie on Twitter at Coleman ESPN. Anything else our listeners need to know about the whereabouts of Freddie Coleman? You know that you can catch me on ESPN Radio, and as much fun as you think we're having, you have to time step by 100 because we know we're very blessed and very fortunate to have a chance to do what we do and enjoy what we do, and hopefully that enjoyment is always going to show through when people are listening. Thank you so much for doing this today, Freddie. We really appreciate it. Anytime. Take care, and God bless, my man. Thank you.
All right, we want to thank Freddie Coleman from ESPN Radio for joining us. Want to mention a couple of things. Don't forget, you can email us anytime, thesportscasters at gmail.com. We love to read listener emails and tweets. If you'd like to tweet us, you can do that at sports underscore casters. If you'd like to tweet Football Nation, you can as well at Football Nation, at FBall Nation, excuse me. Uh, please check out season three, episode one of the Sportscasters proper, featuring interviews with Dan Geesling, the uh, winner of Big Brother 10 and the runner up of Big Brother 14, S.L. Price from Sports Illustrated, and Brian Curtis from Grantland.com. You can find that at www.sports-casters.com on iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Don't forget if you want to listen to a back episode of this podcast that great people at Football Nation have made it a lot easier to find now. Just go to footballnation.com, click on the podcast tab at the top, and one of the first podcasts should be the most recent Sportscasters podcast. And by clicking on our name, you can find the rest of them. Right. Okay. We got email today, Don. We do have email. We got an email from Dan G. from Detroit. Uh, This one is addressed specifically to you. It says, I know you are a big Sooners fan from listening to the show. Uh, Sorry about the Notre Dame game. And I am a big Lions fan. I have been excited about the emergence of Ryan Broyles. What can you tell Lions fans about Ryan? And do you think he can break the string of Oklahoma receivers struggling in the pros? (laughs) Interesting. Well, here's what I can tell you about Ryan Broyles. He wasn't good in college. He was great. He was one of the all-time great statistical receivers to ever play NCAA football. Um, I think he maybe has the record for the most ever receiving yards, or maybe it's the most ever receptions. Whatever it is, he had an unbelievable career at Oklahoma that was actually cut short his senior year because he blew out his ACL last November just about one year ago to this time. And I'll say this, that ACL injury, they often say takes a calendar year. And it was in November, and we're getting to November. So it's no surprise to me that Broyles is getting better the last couple of games that the Lions have played. Um, Do I think he can break the string of struggling OU receivers in the pros? He has as good a chance as anybody. But I'm the wrong guy to ask. I would have swore to you that Malcolm Kelly was going to be a great NFL player. Um, I watched every game Malcolm Kelly played as a Sooner, and I thought he was destined for greatness in the league, and he wasn't. I probably would have swore to you, though maybe not as hard, that Mark Clayton would have been a great, great NFL player, and he was an okay player for the Baltimore Ravens. You know, never was a great player, never an all-pro, but a decent receiver there. Um and I don't know who else is in this string of struggling receivers in the pros. I'm not sure. Um, Brandon Jones uh, is a former Oklahoma wide receiver who played in the pros, but he always struggled at OU. Um, who else? The Bears had a wide receiver from Oklahoma whose name is skipping my brain right now, and he was another guy who was just okay. Uh, so I'd be excited about Broyles if I was a Lions fan. I'm excited to watch Broyles play in the pros. Do you think Broyles can rap like Malcolm Kelly? I know that he can't. Okay. You got it? I don't, no. Oh, I thought you were queuing it up The song we come into, Remix to a Remix, uh, Ronald Jenkins is the guy that writes that, and he actually wrote or laid that song over a Malcolm Kelly. If you haven't heard the Malcolm Kelly rap after... Yeah, seek it out. Yeah, the... uh, It was the Big 12 championship game against Nebraska, Malcolm Kelly's sophomore year. Uh, You'll love it. But uh, Lions fans, I think you have a lot to look forward to in Ryan Broyles. And he's going to get his shot with the Nate Burleson leg injury to uh, play some slot there as Titus Young will probably slide to the outside 
and be the number two, right? That'd be my yeah, guess. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. We talked about how if you type something in Google, it auto-completes it. If you type Malcolm Kelly into YouTube, it finishes it with freestyle. Oh, yeah. It pops right up. It's great. So you got it then? Play a couple uh, seconds of it. All right, hold on. I just closed it. But, uh, yeah, so I'll set it up. So Oklahoma wins the Big 12 championship game, and everyone's kind of huddled around Malcolm Kelly. The clip is provided by the official Oklahoma website, was the one who originally recorded Malcolm Kelly rapping. Not the one with Ronald Jenkins? No, without. Okay, here it is. Yeah, so he is. And it just gets better from there. I would have played the whole thing, but Don's got the uh, controls over there. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, check it out. Malcolm Kelly, a much better rapper than NFL wide receiver. <laughs> we'll have to work on his hand signals. I thought you were telling me to fade it out. No, I was saying, saying play, play it out. out. Oh, okay. Next time. Uh, it's a teaser. Go, go look for it. It's great. One last thing. All right, one last thing for me this week. Marcus Lattimore of South Carolina. Uh, uh, if you thought – I don't know if I should congratulate you on having the most disgusting injury I've ever seen since Willis. Willis, probably. Willis McGahee's uh, championship game injury, right? Yeah, against Ohio State. We watched it together in college at uh, Fredonia. Yeah, it's a horrible injury. Marcus Lattimore puts that to shame. This poor kid has a broke. <clears throat> Usually watching something will make you kind of wince. Reading his injury is rough. He has a broken right femur and patella. And all four of his ligaments were torn. His ACL, oh. MCL, PCL, and LSL. He is out indefinitely. Uh, promising young kid. I think he was a junior a there. A superstar player. And this is the second year in a row. That he's been injured. Yeah. Not as devastating, I'm sure, last year. But, boy, Marcus Lattimore, uh, heal up. And I'm not sure what type of guy you are, but nobody wants to. Everyone seems to think he's a great good kid. Guy. Yeah. yeah, so... Heal up, get back out there, and uh, best of luck to you. I got to think that he's the, he had a Lords of London, you know, the insurance policy. <laughs> okay. But the thing about that is, is if you cash that, you're done as a football player. Oh, really? Yeah. So those insurance policies are great, but you come to the crossroads in your life of, I'm never playing football again. That's one of those things like where like, uh, like Katy Perry would insure her boobs or something. Right, or they, maybe a better example for this show, Sam Bradford, when he went back to OU, took oh, out a Lords of London um, policy that if his career was ended at Oklahoma, he would be insured and would cash out at whatever huh. the total was. But the problem, like I said, is like he was injured that year. He broke his collarbone. Right, Worked out. He was still the first pick in the draft. But if he wanted to cash that policy – he has to walk away from football forever. Hmm. So I wonder if that's like a, they always say the prop bets in the Super Bowl are sucker bets. I wonder if for football players that usually doesn't work out. Yeah, it probably is, and that's why they take them, and that's right. why they give such – I mean, the return on it is seven figures. Yeah. So, all right, one last thing for me today. The New England Patriots stomped on the Jacksonville Jaguars in London, and I only bring it up again – uh, we talked a little about earlier to maybe focus a little bit more on the NFL's insistence to try to cram football down London's throat. And I have to say that I just don't think it's going to happen. And I think the league should focus their attention more on 
other things. This just doesn't seem like it should be a priority. I get the idea of wanting to grow the game, but you make plenty of money on the game right here. And it just doesn't seem like London wants the game. And the interesting thing to me is in the days of NFL Europe, most of the teams were in Germany. So why aren't why isn't the NFL playing these games in Germany? And now there's going to be two games next year, but one of them is going to be the Jaguars who have signed on to play four straight games in London. Is the Jacksonville Jaguars going to be the team that's going to sell London on NFL football? Make sure you sign up for a four-year package to see the emergence of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Don't miss Game 7 of Blaine Gabbert's third season in the National Football League. Come down to Wembley Stadium and watch Blaine Gabbert hook up in the back of the end zone with who? Who's their wide receiver? I don't know. Justin Blackman, who was the fifth pick in the draft and looks like the biggest bum selected. I, I don't I don't know. I don't mean to be hard on the Jaguars or the NFL, but this just seems like a waste of time.